Welcome everybody. Um, gosh, it's hard to believe that year has come and gone as far as this is concerned. Um, hmm. Well, it's a pleasure for me to introduce tonight Isaac Waters. I met Isaac, I guess, a couple of weeks ago when he came here just to kind of scope us out. Um, Isaac is a coach, not an athletic coach, but a life coach. And he is going to talk to you about his journey in recovery. He's been in recovery. He's been sober now for nine years. And every success that he's had today is due to his recovery. And he's going to share his journey. He's going to tell you about he started the collegiate recovery program in College of Charleston with only two people. And now they've got over 30. And he was very involved with that. And he developed a passion. Hello, Warren and Maria. You're on the national web. He developed a passion for um, helping people when he was there, and he is now the managing partner of Recovery Frameworks. He is a coach. He'll go into homes for an hour a day a year, depending on the circumstance, to help coach families and those in recovery get to the next level. So there is absolute hope. So he wants to share what he's learned. He wants people to be successful in having fulfilling lives. He wants to help people be able to navigate recovery, and that's what he's all about. So I'm going to pray for you, Isaac, then I'm going to welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for another redeemed life, God, how you, how you have used Isaac and continue to use him in a mighty way, how you've taken him from an addict to now a coach, God, a life coach. We just pray your continued blessing on the work of his hands and all those that he has vetted to work with him to go into homes, go into the community to help others that are hurting, that are, that are in recovery, that will give them hope and encouragement. Father, we just pray now that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Isaac. Hello, everyone. My name is Isaac Waters. Thank you for the fantastic introduction. I'm really uh, honored to be here. It's always a pleasure when anyone asks me to come share a piece of my story, a piece of what I do. It's a, a great privilege that I have today. So um, just want to thank you guys for being with me tonight uh, and uh, and for the lovely kind of opening remarks that you guys made. Um, it's so funny. Anytime I get wildly anxious to publicly speak, it's like one of these things that I'm just going to get uh, you know, up and up and up and up, and I'm gonna. But eventually, in about three to five minutes, I'll black out, and it'll just be smooth as sailing. So, um, the prayer that I always say right before I get up and, and give any type of talk is, "Let the words be mine, and the message be thine." So, something short and sweet, and uh, that's pretty much how my life goes today. Um, so, I'm gonna share a little piece of my story, what it was like, what happened, what it, what my life is like now, and kind of what the journey has been like, and, and what I do kind of professionally these days. So. Um, I come from a long line of alcoholics. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic household, and I'm sure as uh, you guys have seen in the movies or anything like that, like I didn't know what I was walking into any given day of the week. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but this is something that one in three American families is facing today. And so when I was a kid, it made me feel very alone. It made me feel very isolated. It made me feel like I had to hide. And that was the only thing that I knew. Um, I didn't know whether my father was going to be the happy dad walking in or if he was going to be the angry dad or if he was going to like walk in for dinner at all. Um, my father was wildly successful in his career. Um, he ran a fantastic business, but every night at 5 o'clock, we didn't know what was coming home. Um, so he had all the excuses in the world. You know, He put the clothes on our back. He put the roof over our head. He gave us this fantastic life that from every like kind of angle outside looking in was picture perfect. Um, but on the inside, everybody was scared. Um, and that's how I felt, too. Like, what, I got to present. I got to smile for everyone because I don't want them to know what's going on. Uh, but on the inside, I'm scared all the time. 
And uh, I carried that into kind of my early teens. Um, my parents did eventually split up. We moved around uh, them trying to save their marriage a few times. And I wound up in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, I can remember, like, you know, I was 11 or 12 at that time getting into a new school, like getting plugged in with new people, un, you know, unfamiliar with anybody. And uh, I can remember, like, for some reason that week was the first time that they came and did like a, uh, a just say no to drugs campaign for all of us. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, drugs and alcohol, they're terrible. Like they're terrible. Look what it's done to my family. I was like the first one to sign the sheet, wrote my name in big, bold letters. And, uh, and that worked for about two more years. <laughs> um, and that system didn't work for me for long because when I was exposed to drugs and alcohol, all of those fears that I had, all of that anxiety, all of that, like feeling like I had to put on a smile and a face, it all went away. Um, they talk about it in some 12-step meetings, like people like to drink because of the effects produced. Um, and that's the exact experience that I had, uh, was that as soon as I put it into my body, I don't have to fear anymore. I can be one of, I don't have to compare myself to everyone around me. Uh, I just felt okay. Um, and that's a dangerous place to be because anyone who has experienced that, like that's how I wanted to feel all the time. And as you know, you can't be drunk all the time at 15 years old. Like uh, people catch on to that really quickly. Um, so my family uh, tried to do everything that they could. They tried to intervene. My mom tried to put me on curfew. Um, I would get mad at mom and just move out with dad, and there was no rules at dad's house. So uh, I ping-ponged around between my family. And um, my brother went off to college, and you know it was just me. Uh, it was just me and my two parents that were single parents living in, in their own houses, and I just went wherever I wanted to. Um, and I hid from everything. I hid from my parents. I hid from my school. I hid from my friends. Uh, I just didn't want anyone to know what was going on inside because I felt like I had to protect this stuff so much. Um, and eventually, uh, it became too much. I was drinking. I was taking pills every day. I was smoking every day. And uh, I knew that like something was going on. My parents had this... Uh, I thought I was having a family session with my dad, with my therapist. And... Um, you know, lo and behold, my entire family walks in and stages an intervention on me, which was not a fun experience. Um, I was there to tell my dad how bad of a father he was, and then, uh, they're telling me to go to treatment. So the tables were turned on me a little bit. Um, they put these three facilities in front of me. They gave me, like, pamphlets and flyers, and uh, I, like, saw this one where kids were, like, fly fishing, and they were, like, riding canoes and kayaks, and uh, there were some dirt bikes, and I was like, you know what, I think I could do that for three months, you guys. And I got there, and they shaved my head and put me in an orange jumpsuit. Um, and I had arrived at boot camp. I didn't know. Um, I got my parents didn't know either. Was the scary thing. Um, my parents had no idea what was going on. Anytime I tried to write a letter about the conditions of the facility that I was at, they wouldn't mail it out. Um, everything got screened coming in and out. And uh, I'm grateful to say that this facility is no longer open. Um, this was about oh, I was. 17, so 11 years ago, um, and uh, that was in Huntsville, Alabama. And I got in there, and I can remember doing my assessment. Anytime you check into treatment, somebody's going to ask you like 100 questions, and they're going to like run through all these lists. And um, at the end of it, this guy looks at me and says, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? Um, and I hadn't really like thought of a problem yet. Like I didn't know that I was a problem. I didn't know like what was going on with me really. What I did know was that I think I have a problem with drugs. Like I think that there's this thing that's bothering and, and weighing me down. 
Um, and he said, we don't treat that here. We're going to diagnose you oppositionally defiant, um, and we're going to put you in line, and you're going to march, and you're going to listen to us, and you're going to get better. And um, at 18, like 17, 18, I was way too old to, <laughs> to kind of uh, identify with that. And um, I got out of there and uh, did not have a positive view of what recovery was. Um, and I, yeah, I didn't feel good. It didn't feel good. It wasn't uplifting. It wasn't humanizing. I felt like just an ant, like crawling on a log every day and, and being told what to do. And so I got out of there. My like trials and tribulations with drugs continued. Like I was not successful at maintaining my recovery. I had every honest desire to stay clean and sober leaving that facility. And I only made it two weeks. Um, and so that tail spun me down further and further and further. I went to another treatment facility um, down in Jacksonville. I had a good experience there. I got exposed to the 12 steps for the first time in my life and uh, had a pretty profound experience that I thought that I could make this work. Like there's a piece of this um, that I think that could work. I was in Jacksonville. I was at the beach. There was a lot of young people that were going to meetings. We would ride bikes. We would go to the bowling alley. We'd go to the movies. I had fun, um, which was something that I had not done sober in my entire life. And uh, after all of that, um, I moved back to Charleston, and I tried to find some meetings. And, uh, you know, as an 18-year-old kid, like, one of my biggest fears was walking into a meeting and, like, nothing but old men sitting around complaining about their problems. Like, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that kind of excuse. And that's exactly what I found when I went to meetings with a bunch of old men sitting around complaining about their problems and playing golf on the weekend. And I was like, this is my nightmare. Like, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And uh, one of the first people to talk to me in Charleston uh, was this guy that is, you know, he's 90 now, so he was 80 back then, and uh, towered over me. He was this big six-foot-eight man, and he said, so I hear you play golf, and uh, I knew that I was doomed. Like, I can't make this work. Um, I was not successful in my recovery then, but I got exposed to it. The seed was planted. Um, I went back to drinking and doing drugs and every time I drank I told myself that it was the wrong decision um, every time I used drugs I told myself one is too many a thousand is never enough um, every time I like continued to go down that path there was this whisper in the back of my head that's saying there's another way to do this um, yes I had all these feelings yes I had all this anxiety yes I had all these fears I was using drugs and alcohol to, to medicate it but there was something in the back of my head that said, like, we can get through this another way. Um, and that's that piece of hope. Like, that's a, a moment of clarity that is a little taste of what I needed at the time. And so at the same time, my father went to treatment. And this is a guy that I watched bounce in and out of 16 treatment centers before I was 12. Um, it was like, what holiday is he going to rehab this year? Like, we just didn't know. And um, he went to treatment. He came back for Christmas. He, like, got leave, and uh, I walked into, like, Christmas holiday. My aunt's, like, the fire's on, and I saw this guy standing in the corner, and I could not recognize him. I had no idea who it was, and it was my dad. Um, something had changed in him to where I could not recognize the man that he was presenting anymore, and this thought, like, whispered into the back of my head, and I'm going to cuss a little, so I apologize in advance, but the thought was, if that asshole can do it, I can do it too. Um, because I hated that man, you know, I did. And uh, I hated the way that he made me feel when I was a kid. Um, I really just like thought that it was never an option for him because he tried so many times, so many times, so many times. And when I saw it stick with him, I got a little bit of hope. Um, 
and I'm getting chills even thinking about it. But I went to treatment a month later, um, and I'm grateful to say that I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a drug since January 28th of 2013. Um, and that's what it was like leading up to it. It was chaos. I was full of fear all the time. Um, I went to a great treatment facility that's actually here in Atlanta, Talbot Recovery Campus, which at the time had a fantastic young adult program, which I'm sad to say that they no longer have. Uh, but I was in treatment for four and a half months, surrounded by 25 young men between the ages of 18 and 25. We hung out, we played cards, we went to Hawks games, we went to Falcons games. We, I had a blast in treatment, which no one should be able to say. Um, and it really showed me that this was a good life, that I, I could lead it. Um, and if I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, that it was an option for me. Um, and before, I really didn't think that it was. And so I got back um, to Charleston and uh, just did recovery stuff. I went to like three meetings a day for like nine months when I got back. Um, I signed up and did a long-term monitoring program when I was leaving treatment, which I went to treatment with a bunch of pilots, lawyers, uh, you know, attorneys, that they have all these professional monitoring programs that they have to do when they go to treatment. And so nurses, like anyone in the medical field, and uh, I can remember reading the study that they put in front of them is that these doctors, attorneys, pilots that are monitored for five years have an 85% chance of long-term recovery of 10 years or more, um, when traditional treatment has a 5.5% chance. Um, and I remember reading that and saying, like, well, why don't I just do monitoring, you guys? Like, can we just build that for me? And uh, they did. So I had to call a number um, every morning, and they would tell me if my color was ready. And I would have to – I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a bike. Um, I would have to walk to this place to go um, take a drug test. And I did that, like, three days a week um, <laughs> for a year. Uh, I said that I would do five. Um, at about 15 months of recovery, it felt a little um, – over the top, but uh, I, I did it for a year. And um, anyone that comes in to work with us, that's what I recommend to them. Like, do it for a year. A year is such a small piece of time, and it can really like set the stage for what happens. Um, but I was really young. I was 19. I hadn't gone to college. I had barely gotten through high school, um, and I had a lot of dreams of like things that I wanted to accomplish. And I really didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know how I was going to navigate like life on a college campus as a young person, like trying to not drink and do drugs. Like, am I going to be able to make friends? Am I going to be able to do any of this kind of stuff? Um, is the pressure going to be too much? Is it going to drive me to drink? Because I don't know if an education is worth that. Is the is the debate that I was having. Um, and I got involved with this movement uh, called the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. And their catchphrase is, is that nobody should have to choose between a life of recovery and an education. And I was like, that's exactly what I've been dealing with, you guys. Um, and we started a chapter in Charleston uh, that has been the greatest privilege of my life is to be able to kind of build that at, at that school. Um, I can remember sitting down in, in a session with the dean of students. And like typically, dean of students don't like kids like me that get in trouble all the time. And uh, she like extended her hand and like showed me like all of the love in the world. Her name was Dr. Cabot, and I will never forget her because she sat with me every Tuesday and filled out grants and like filled out all of this stuff and really like set the stage for how this program was going to start. This woman who had no right like sitting with these two students. Um, she worked with us every Tuesday at eleven o'clock, and uh, we would bring her breakfast. We'd bring her coffee. She was the sweetest woman in the world, and uh, she just retired actually from CFC. So that was a great loss for them, but. Uh, pretty much we went to the president of the college. I have no idea how we finagled this meeting, but we did. We walked into his office and told him that we wanted to start this group. And uh, he said, you can go do it if you guys raise $500,000. And I was like, 
what a great way for that guy to shoot us down, you know? Like, yeah, I'll co-sign it, but you got to go raise all this money. And I'm like, I'm a 21-year-old kid. I have no idea about fundraising, like nothing. And I was like, all right. Like, I did what any kid does. I, I went to Google and said, how do you fundraise? And uh, we came up with a plan, and uh, we threw this event, and we spoke about our journeys in recovery and about how you know, kids navigating life on campus, how it didn't have to look like this, and how there are these programs all across the country. South Carolina was the last state in the country to not have a collegiate recovery program, and we raised $385,000 on that first night. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think after that, they took us serious. (laughs) Um, They cashed that check very quickly. Um, (laughs) But uh, with that in mind, like, we got started. Um, I got to be a part of a hiring process, and now the collegiate recovery program has has two endowed scholarships, Um, and has a director and an academic advisor that are only there to support students in recovery. Um, That's their only job. Um, And so uh, it's it's fantastic. We had our graduation, um, I guess, party last week. Uh, Every year, whenever students are graduating out of the program, they throw a big gala, and we had been put off because of COVID. And so we had like 20 students graduating because they had to do three years of, of, of schooling for it. So it was a privilege to go back to that. Um, when I was getting started there, I got exposed to this idea of peer support. So, like, what does it mean for two students who are going through the same problems to sit down and talk about it and to lend a helping hand to one each other, one, like one another? Uh, it's a common foundation in any 12-step group about how, you know, we extend our hand, we take other people through 12 steps, we do what we can to give it away, freely give it away. Uh, But what happened to me when I was 22 years old is that I could not go into a 12-step meeting and complain about my math teacher. Um, I couldn't talk about how the stress of econ was really difficult when, like, people are walking in there and are experiencing, like, real problems. Um, I felt like I didn't have a place to talk about it anymore, and that is what I had done my entire life was hide, and I knew that I needed to. Um, And so we built this space for students to talk about their math problems that's got a computer lab in it so you can sit and have somebody else help you focus that can teach you those things because many students who are coming into clear recovery have not been in school for three or four years. Um, They've taken a break. Um, They have been in that failure to launch standpoint where they got to college and they just couldn't succeed. And so Creating safe spaces like this with structure and support for when they get back is what the results say that 90% of people who wind up in a collegiate recovery program graduate, which is so much higher than any retention of any college. Um, And so these programs are everywhere. There's, I think, eight in the Atlanta area. Um, And so uh, anyone who wants to get plugged in at any of those, I'm happy to do it. I I love the collegiate recovery movement. but that peer support concept is something that I latched on to because I was like, there's got to be some things that are working. Um, I had a friend who had moved up to New York City, and uh, he became a recovery companion, sober companion. And I was like, what in the world is that? Um, he moved into this individual's household who was getting out of treatment and helped him set up his foundation for what recovery was going to look like. He followed him everywhere. Um, he went with him to the grocery store. He went with him to meetings. He went with him to church on Sundays. He went with him to his office when he had to go into work meetings. Um, and uh, I was like, that's absurd. <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you mean you just follow this guy around everywhere? Um I was like, this is a job? I don't understand any of this. And uh, it blew my mind. But when he started talking about it, about how he was laying the groundwork for them to openly chat about recovery, for him to be a friend, a mentor, a guide, 
a coach at the end of the day. Um, how do we coach these people that are coming in that have zero experience? We're talking like peewee football, you know. Um, how do we guide them to navigate them through this life of recovery? Because that has been the biggest challenge for so many people for so many years. Is like, you know, we've got someone, they're entering recovery. I don't know what to do now. Um, they went to treatment. I don't know what to do at home. Uh, it's the biggest thing. And so I always talk about a flower that's dying in its pot. We've got an individual who is sick, um, really sick. We can take them out of that pot, put them in some new soil, water it, nurture it. But what happens when we move them back home and put them in that same old pot? Like that's where they got sick. And so if we do not put structure and support around that, like individuals will get sick again. Um, and we see that with the 5% success rates of treatment centers. Uh, these individuals come home, they get out, they come back. Um, they're in that environment that you know, made them feel like I did when I was a kid, that made them feel like they had to hide. I'm not saying that this is necessary, but that's how they feel. And so when we come back and put them into these safe structured environments is when we can see this you know, long-term accountability of the monitoring, of the coach, of the therapist, of the psychiatrist, of all of these pieces, spokes on a wheel, that's how we can get them rolling. And so what I do today is I am one of the founders of Recovery Frameworks. Um, we started this based off the belief that uh, not only did recovery companions need to happen in New York and LA, but they needed to happen everywhere. It needed to be more accessible, did not need to be for just like only Hollywood actors and stars. It needed to be for everybody because the impacts of peer support is something that I believe wholeheartedly in. Um, that only someone who has fallen down in a hole can tell you how to get out of it. Uh, that for years people have been saying, avoid that hole that's gonna be coming up in 30 days, 90 days, go to 90 meetings in 90 days because there will be a hole on that 90th day. They're not there to catch them when they fall. And so when we've got somebody that's with them, uh, when we've got someone who can say, hey, we're going to be falling into this in a couple days, I can already see it, uh, how do we help them navigate through and around it? Because not everybody has to fall on their face. Sometimes we can put a safety net underneath them. Um, and so I believe that recovery can be a lifelong process for anyone, that it's always accessible. It just depends on how much structure and support that we put around them in the early stages, because that's the most crucial time. That's when we lay the foundation for the what do they say, the uh, fantastic bedrock for which their life is about to change. Um, and so with that in mind, uh, what we do as coaches is we come in and we build rapport, number one. Um, we sit with them, we find something to connect with them on, uh, because as soon as that person can say like, oh, this is my friend, I can talk to them, I can confide in them. Um, it doesn't have many of the same, it has some of the same characteristics as therapy, but it is more of a friendship than anything else. Um, a camaraderie, a compatriot, a companion. Um, so we're there to be with them. We're there to kind of sit with them through the dark times, uh, through the hard times, and to celebrate when they're doing well. Uh, that's my favorite part of my job is I get to watch these people's lives change, and I get to like hoot and holler from the sideline and like really get to watch these lives transform. Um, and so we do that through many different ways. And, and, you know, most of the people who come on to work with us, like, work with us for around six to nine months. Um, so I'm talking that long-term commitment for what it looks like for change. And so uh, when it comes to substance use recovery, that's our generic kind of, you know, frame of mind. Um, based out of need, I will say that uh, we do this for eating disorders and we do this for mental health as well. Um, and so those were worlds that to me professionally were new. I had spent my entire kind of working career in peer support for substance use recovery, whether it was an opioid response or the collegiate recovery. Uh, I 
can't tell you how many calls that I received from parents that were so scared because um, their daughter or their son or their spouse had stopped eating or that they were overeating. And uh, I didn't know how to help them. Um, I really didn't. And so I knew how to help with the substance use. I was like, we got a clear cut prescription for this. You know, Um, here's what you're going to do over the next 90 days. You're going to have this person with you five days a week. Um, What does it look like when you know, someone who struggles with something, you have to tell them that they have to be, be exposed to it three times a day. You can't tell an alcoholic that they have to take a shot of whiskey morning, noon, and night. Um, when it comes to the eating disorder side of things, that's how you live. Uh, and so that was a, a trial and a tribulation that I did not know how to help. Um, so I did w- what I do best. I hopped on the internet. Um, I Googled some stuff and I got connected with a dietitian and a psychiatrist to consult on how to do our, our eating disorder recovery coaching. And um, I'm grateful that they are on board and that they help manage all of that. And all I have to do is work with coaches. Um, so bringing them back to principles. Uh, the mental health side of things as well can be extremely different than substance use. And so I, I know that like oftentimes it's all under the guise of mental health, substance use, eating disorders, bipolar, like borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, like whatever we are dealing with is all under the guise of mental health, but each of them has a unique set of needs. Just like each person has a unique set of needs. If it's substance use, my recovery journey looks different than one of my best friend's recovery journeys, who looks different than his, who looks different than my father's, who looks different from you know his dad's uh, recovery journey. And so everybody has a different set of needs. And so the biggest thing that I do is I ask them what they need. Um, so many times do people get prescribed what they're going to be doing. They get told to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And what happens when someone says, I hate 12-step meetings, I will not go. Does that mean that they're doomed? Like, I don't think so. Um, I think that if someone has agency on what they're going to do in their recovery journey, if we give them the safe space to talk about what they're going to do and then hold them accountable to it, then we've got a chance of success. Because if I just prescribe them 90 meetings in 90 days and that's the one thing that they're refusing to do, then I'm missing out on all the other opportunities to help them. Maybe they need help with their nutrition. Maybe they need help talking to their therapist about something. Maybe they've experienced some extreme trauma that like, I don't know about yet, but is going to come up in the next three to six months. And so if I don't give them enough of a chance to make it to that point, um, when, when the miracle can really happen for these people. So over the past several years, we have been building out our coaching program. We started in Charleston, South Carolina uh, with two coaches. <laughs> um, it was me uh, and a woman. So we do men with men, women with women whenever it comes to our coaching. And so had to have a woman on board. Um, I built this program under the guise that I would be helping nothing but 16 to 18-year-old young men that were experiencing the same thing that I did. The first person to call in was a 58-year-old woman. Um, so uh, what do we do? We innovate. We rapidly uh, kind of come into support because the principles are the same. So we get to talk about the same things with them. We just have to put a different person in there. And so today, you know, two and a half years later, we've gone from two coaches to around, I think, 42 coaches nationwide. And so we've got coaches kind of... I recruit at such a high rate because I want everyone who comes on board with us to have someone who's going to fit their unique needs um, because everybody's different. Uh, everybody has a different background. Everybody has a different 
you know, kind of creed, everyone has a different religion, that we want to be able to come in and provide all forms of support for it. Uh, because the cultural significance of recovery is different everywhere. Um, it's different in New York City as it is here in Atlanta, which is different in Florida, which is different in California, which is different than London, which is very different than Saudi Arabia. Um, they have to have their meetings in secret. And so being aware of these like kind of cultural competencies when it comes to recovery is extremely important because we want people to jump straight in. Um, we want them to have that common bond and to be able to share some stories about how they're similar so that the individual that we're working with can jump right on the bandwagon. It's an easy jump. It's an easy transition to follow the leader. Um, our last placement that we did in New York City was a Hasidic family, and it was a I was lucky that I had just interviewed a Hasidic coach like two days prior. And so mm -hmm. it was one of those, uh, I, I guess there are no, co no coincidences anymore. Um, so when those things happen, it's just like have to roll with it, have to roll with it. So, um, well, I, uh, I blacked out. I don't know how much I rambled. Um, I'm known to do it. I guess uh, my biggest thing that I want to tell you guys today is that one of my driving passions in recovery today is sharing about the language of recovery. How do we talk about it? Like, what do we do? How do we speak with the, our individuals and our loved ones about this thing? Because I think oftentimes people felt the same way that I did that are struggling with substances. They felt, feel alone. They feel afraid. And then we use terms like drug addict, junkie. Um, we label them clean or dirty. Uh, we do a lot of this stuff to narrate them um, and to put them into these little boxes. And so... What happens when we shift this language to a language of recovery instead, and we call them a person with a substance use disorder or a person in long-term recovery, um, it changes it, and they feel like a person first now, um, which we did this when it came to mental disabilities about 20 years ago in PC culture, and it has not caught on to this side of things. It hasn't caught on to mental health yet. And so whatever it is, I always talk about person-centered language because the more we can make them feel like a person, the more they're going to connect with someone. and connection is a requirement for recovery. It is a requirement. Um, it does not happen in a vacuum. You have to do it with other people. That's true for individuals. It's true for families. So the fact that you guys are here connecting with other families about what's going on is one of the biggest and best things that you can do for yourself. Because what we see each and every time of each and every time, every family that I work with, the families that do work on their own are the ones who their individual find success in recovery. Um, each and every time. So uh, the more work that you guys do, the better chance you're giving for your loved one. Um, so I hate to put the burden on you guys yet again because the burden always falls on the family, but I will say that the harder you guys work, the higher the chance of success will be for your loved one. Um, so with that, I'm going to wrap and open up to some questions. I don't know how long I spoke, but um, I'm sure there are some questions, and if so, I'll be able to dive deeper into what I do or anything like that. Does that work? Yeah. Perfect. Bring it. So typically, you know, it seems like the person who's the, uh, the addict, they've got to be open to having a friend, mm. open to having a coach. Yeah. You know, how do you deal with that? Because you say the family calls and you know, set something up. I, I deal with it every day. Um, yeah. So I will say about... 50-50 is the ratio for, for who calls in. Um, so sometimes it's, you know, the family's calling in or sometimes it's the individual calling in for themselves. Um, so when it comes to families who reach out that have uh, a resistant loved one, is, is how I like to put it, um, really just set up a meeting with us because um, I think that that's the easiest way for me to take them out to coffee or out to lunch and to just sit and connect with them. Um, 
And so I do that with everyone that comes on board with us. I'll just have a casual conversation with them, introduce them to their coach who is going to be working with them. And that way it's, it's casual. It's not like we're walking into treatment, like we're not walking you in somewhere. We're just going to have a good lunch. Um, so make it as casual as possible. Talk to them about the outcomes that they can see too. Like if this is where you are right now, this is where I'm going to try to get you. So paint the picture for them and what it's going to look like. Do you have to catch someone as soon as they've gotten out of recovery or what if they've gotten out of a program and they've already backslidden some, mm. they've seen some success? Yeah. Um, we can meet with people at any stage in their recovery process. Um, so the early stages where individuals might still actively be using um, is a little bit different for us um, because we're focusing on recovery here. Um, if we're working with an individual for some time and a recurrence of use does happen, we do not leave them. Um, so we stay with them through that. But no matter where someone is on that recovery curve or spectrum, we can jump right in and support them. So um, all it takes is a little bit of willingness to meet with us. Um, so hope that answered your question. Yeah. So you're in South Carolina. Yep. How about here? Do you have we are headquartered here in Atlanta, Georgia now. Yep, yep. So um, that's, that's, we moved our headquarters up here in August. So we're here. Uh, I'm back one, and then okay, so I saw that hand first. You're headquartered, yeah, but um, do you serve other regions as well? Yes, so we have offices in Atlanta, Charleston, Nashville, Charlotte, Raleigh, um, D.C., New York, Houston, Chicago, and Los Angeles. So... Um, Companions, who are the full live-in service that we provide, can go nationwide. Um, so depending on, on what level you're looking for, we offer virtual coaching as well, um, depending on where the individual is kind of located, if that seems like the best opportunity. Um, and I also know a, a ton of the other agencies that, that work in the same capacity that we do, and I, I'm more than happy to connect you um, throughout the country. So. So, so, Amy, just before you, one more question. Yeah. So, Yes, yes. I got cards for everyone, whoever needs it, uh, my name, number, all of that. So I mentioned to my daughter that I was coming to you to speak. And so how would you explain to her that you're just not a paid sponsor? Oh, this is a great question. And I, I didn't hear it. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, she asked, how do you explain to a loved one that we are not paid sponsors? Um, so a sponsor is an individual that guides you through the 12 steps. Um, and so uh, it's funny because we have a lot of the same characteristics as sponsors. Uh, we do. We're in lived, like in recovery ourselves. We, if we're working with someone who is in a 12-step recovery, we're going to put them with a coach who's in 12-step recovery. The biggest thing is, is that we have a ton of professional guidance that we're doing as recovery coaches. And sponsors are someone that you're walking into a meeting and meeting. Um, so we don't know what they're doing. They have zero accountability to because it is an anonymous program. We have forms that we have to fill out. We have case managers. Like we have all of this kind of therapeutic background for what we're doing. Um, I kind of say that we're halfway between a sponsor and a counselor. So we sit right there. Yep. Finance, yeah. self-finance. Um, so we started this. I've got a business partner. Um, we, uh, you know, when we were getting started, what does any good um, kind of startup do? We raised money from the three Fs: friends, families, and fools. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's what we did. That's what we did. So, yeah, we had some very supportive family members. Very supportive family members. How do you secure your coaches? What's the rigmarole that they go through? 
Definitely. Uh, it's my biggest nightmare um, because I'm constantly in need of coaches, uh, and so we recruit nationwide. The biggest thing that we do to find coaches is, you know, one, through common connections. So, like, uh, you know, if someone knows that this is what I do and they tell me about their friend, um, I'm going to put them through a very rigorous process to get into the hiring stage. And so we do four rounds of interviews with everyone who works with us. We grill them on a lot of our core foundation beliefs and ask them a lot of questions about themselves. I want to know them. Um, every one of our coaches does a, you know, after they make it through the round of interviews, they do a personality quiz, an Enneagram test, and a management quiz. So how do they want to be managed? How do they manage others? How are they going to motivate somebody else is what I want to know. Um, because every individual that we come in to serve has a different unique set of needs. So I don't want to put a drill sergeant with someone who's super shy. Like, I can't do that. And so we're going to ask them questions about how they're going to communicate. Do you prefer to text? Do you prefer to do phone calls? Um, at the end of the day, we have a training program that we put everyone through as well. We're in a training right now. Uh, if, so our training program is modeled after the IRI, International Recovery Institute, um, which I used to be a, a facilitator of that training. So pretty easy that we were able to pull it into our organization. So it makes it nice. Um, when it comes to our mental health side of things, we are requiring a clinical licensure. So they have to either be a KDAC, an MSW, an LPCA, LPC. Um, we do background checks on everyone. You know, we're doing the whole nine. Yeah. Any other questions? So this is a question that's hanging in the air, Isaac. I will ask it. Yeah. What does this cost? Mm. Yes, we can talk about that. Um, we uh, do not accept insurance. We're completely private pay. Um, I, it's my least favorite part of the job, to be honest with you. I wish that I could do this for everybody. Um, and so we have a varying level of service costs and things that we do. Um, so all intensive purposes, companionship, which is 24-7 care, it's very expensive. Um, it comes at uh, a daily rate of around $833 a day if you're signing up for one month or more. Um, so, and, you know, we're requiring a one-month commitment on that. Uh, coaching can be as little as uh, it can range in prices drastically depending on how many hours a week that we find it necessary for you. So we don't like any individual to start less than 10 hours a week with us. Um, and so we do blocks of coaching hours. And so what that looks like is that if you're signing up for a long-term commitment, you're going to get a drastic reduction in price. Um, because I want to encourage long-term commitment to any type of support and accountability. So if you're signing on for three to six months with us, we're gonna be at $100 an hour, right there. Um, if you're doing short-term stays with us two weeks post-treatment, we're at $150 an hour. Yep. And who determines the length of the period of time that they're gonna be with you? Yeah, so we can offer a general guise. We'll work with the treatment team that is on board. Um, so if they are exiting treatment, we will work with their aftercare, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if they've got a therapist, if they've got a psychiatrist, we'll listen to their recommendation. Also, the family and the individual have a ton of say and autonomy in this. Um, because if they're at you know, 13 weeks, which is you know, 90 days, right when we said that we were gonna kind of begin to onboard and the individual comes to me and they're like, you know what, I really need to keep up. I really need to do, uh, I don't wanna like drop off, I wanna, I wanna go down to maybe every other week. Um, but we do a pretty rapid titration with people because I don't wanna go from 20 hours a week with someone to zero hours a week. Like I wanna go from 20 to 15 to 10 to five, 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 and then down. So um, I will say that Nine times out of ten, it comes to a very natural conclusion um, that individual has like begun to either um, kind of 
put the things in place that they need in their life to, to be able to support themselves. And, and they're doing that by themselves sometimes now too, and not just with us. And so the more that we're seeing them follow through on that recovery plan of action um, by themselves, the easier it is for us to kind of, kind of say to pull back. I will say that the average family stays with us for around three to six months. Isaac, can you walk us through uh, a hypothetical scenario? You've got a 19-year-old boy that's just completed 30 days of Blue Ridge Mountain mm. Recovery, and uh, their family's going to sign them up for, let's just say, a minimum period of time. Yeah. They want to test you and see if their son is really yeah. What does that look like when you first meet the young person, and where do you meet them? What do you talk about? You know, just kind of walk us through that. Yeah, certainly. Um, so first session, like the first time we sit down and meet with them, um, before all of that, I'm going to have a very extensive conversation with the family. So before we meet with the young person, I want to know the whole history. I'm going to ask a ton of questions. I'm going to ask about personality. I'm going to ask about all these things, hobbies, interests, uh, what attempts at treatment have we done in the past? Like, you know, if there are any clinicians on board, I'm going to get some releases of information and be able to talk to them too. Um, I want a very comprehensive view of what we are dealing with. And so when we sit down to meet with um, the individual, we've got all this stuff in the back of our brain. Um, we know kind of what they're struggling with. We know the things that they have said that they're going to do to support their recovery, the things that they're not going to do. Um, like I can't tell you how many 19-year-olds that I have spoken with that are in treatment that are like, when I get back, I'm going straight back to the jewel. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to start vaping again. That's the first thing that they always say. They want to let me know that they're going to start vaping again. And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything about it. Like, um, but it's, they will always tell us what they're going to do. Um, and so we sit down with them and really we hang out first time. I, I really, any of our coaches, the first session is always going to be super jovial. It's going to be super convivial. It's going to be telling some stories. Maybe they go play basketball. Maybe we've had individuals that wanted to go golfing with their coach. Like they're going to go do something fun to get the individual who has an interest in something so that we can jump into that interest with them so that we can build that common bond. Um, so maybe it's skateboarding, maybe it's, you know, whatever. Um, it, can be, it can be different for everyone. But that first session is around two hours. Uh, we're going to send them back to the family, send our coach back to us, and, and kind of pick the coach's brain about how they think things went. I'm going to reach out to the family, how did the things do, and then I'm going to reach out to the individual. Like, what did you think of your coach? Um, so every f family who comes on board with us has like a three-week window that I suggest. Like, if you are going to sub out your coach, please do it in these three weeks because I don't want them to get too close. Um, and so uh, that's just how we practice it. And so um, that first session really is super jovial. When we get into the second and third session, we start working on goals. So like, what are we gonna be doing? Um, this is the plan of action that you had leaving Blue Ridge Recovery. Uh, are you following through on it right now? Um, if not, we use motivational interviewing, which if you're not familiar, it's asking people guiding questions to get them to come up with some like kind of good solutions. And so if you're not following through on it, uh, what would make you follow through on it? So if your goal was to go to four meetings a week and you're only going to two right now, what do we have to do to get two more meetings a week into your schedule? And so asking a kind of open-ended leading question like that, they're like, well, if I need to make it to two more meetings, maybe I need to call this person on Tuesday night to get a ride here and I need to call this person to get a ride here. So then we've got an answer. So then I have something to hold them accountable to if they're gonna make it to those two extra meetings. I've got the thing that they had to do to make that happen. Now I can ask them about it again in a day's time. Um, and so that's gonna be our typical kind of goal workshop. Like we're gonna, 
we go through, uh, I mean, a lot of different things with individuals. And so uh, oftentimes it's going to be, sometimes they're setting a spiritual goal. Sometimes they're setting an educational goal. Sometimes it's their work, like they want to get plugged back into the job. And we want to work with them through that. So we're very holistic in everything that we do. It's not just like super hyper-focused. And so if the individual, like you're describing, 19-year-old, I'd be asking him about college. Like I'd be asking him if he had filled out his applications. If, if not, um, here I've got a ton of experience navigating college campuses. Would you like some help? Like, do you want me to introduce you to so and so? I can I can talk to them. If you need your application read by another set of eyeballs, like I know the, you know, this person in this office that can that can read your application. So I went on a. Where do you typically meet them? So we meet individuals in their home. That's my biggest thing. Uh, it's in their home where they're comfortable. Uh, also, we go out and do excursions with them. So like if they want to go uh, hike the waterfalls, if they want to go out to dinner, if they want to go to the movies, if they want to go play golf, we're going to do those things with them, but we're going to talk about the things while we're doing it. Um, and so sometimes I've seen individuals who, what I like to call is like kind of their, their uh, jaw starts moving as fast as their feet. And so they'll start talking when their feet start moving. Um, and that's a privilege that we have as coaches because we're not confined by four walls. We can really go anywhere. We can do anything. We can go to the beach. We can, we can do it all. So um, I let the individual kind of set the stage for that. So like if somebody says that they want to play basketball twice a week with us, like I want them to play basketball twice a week with us. Uh, if they want to do all of their sessions in their living room, then we're going to do all their sessions in their living room. I'm going to try to get them out of the house a little bit, but um, we're, we're going to make sure that they're comfortable and confident in what they're doing with their coach. Typically, they don't want to be home with their parents yeah. while they're doing it. So, <laughs> typically. And so, how, how well is the, the virtual group uh, We do virtual out of necessity. Um, it's, I'll be honest with you, it's not my favorite. Um, I think that, like, when it comes to it, uh, there is such power in connection. And that's why everybody was kind of craving coming back out of, you know, back into the offices or back into groups like this. There is really power and looking at someone and being able to read their body language and, and like all of those things and it's really hard to do on a square um our coaching program looks very different virtually because of those boundaries um and so it's going to be much more structured uh we're going to have some like very clear forms and formats for them to go through so that we can make sure that everything is okay um, anytime we do a virtual session we make them do a, a house check with us so they have to walk us around their house and their apartment and we can see if it's clean you know all of that so looks very different though it does look very different any more questions get them all um, well I want to thank you guys for letting me come and speak tonight um, like I said at the beginning of my talk it's always an honor and a privilege um, to be able to share a piece of my story in the guise of hope because I think that Recovery does not happen in a vacuum. Um, it's not an absence of pain that people are experiencing when they're trying or, or staying. You know, I think that that phrase is, is often used too much, that they haven't experienced enough pain yet, they haven't hurt enough yet, they haven't lost enough yet. I really think that it's an absence of hope. Um, they don't know how that they're going to do it, and they haven't seen somebody do it yet. And so that's why I do what I do, and I share my story as regularly as I can. So thanks for being here and being attentive, and, and thank you to the Brokehearts for inviting me to do this. So it was a pleasure.